and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it is number 124. I just checked, and the first podcast was in September 2018. I have no idea why I felt the need to look that up. Obviously nothing better to do. Although I must say, looking things up is a whole lot easier now than it used to be in BC, or before computers. When, if the information wasn't in a book, or from your parents, and that could be dodgy information anyway, you had to go to a library. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and yes, I admit it, I have been to a library. I used to be asked to leave the university library quite often for talking too much, so not a lot has changed there. Speaking of no change, it's been raining for an entire day, we're still in lockdown, and the forecast says it won't stop for a week. Normally, I could just look out of the window and shake my head. Now I have a dog to walk, regardless of the weather. I wonder if treadmills count. It's also the last week of homeschooling here, while we think it is. Still no notification about a vaccine appointment. All of the people I know of the same age as me in England have received theirs, so who knows what the reason for that is. Before we go any further, let me tell you who this week's guests are. We have conversations with Consider Bardwell Farm co-owner Angela Miller, we talked to Rob Rogers, Senior Advisor, Food Safety and Regulation in the Metler Toledo Product Inspection Division, and Dr. Chris Pillage, Lecturer in Food Technology at RMIT University in Australia. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. So let's take a look at this week's news, none of which includes the interview with Harry and Meghan. Well, Oprah didn't ask them anything about dairy, so that's probably why. New research from Kerry says mind-body beverage benefits will drive demand. A bit too much alliteration in that one. Friesland Campina is blaming the pandemic and restructuring for its 2020 results. NZMP has launched Carbon Zero Organic Butter, and we will have an interview about that on the podcast next week, or maybe the week after. We had our monthly update from Maxim Foods. Schwarzwald Milch has debuted the SIG CombiMax closure, and in Canada, the government has helped fund the new Baby Bell plant in Quebec. Thailand's Chulalongkorn University has developed a system to keep milk fresh for longer so producers can get their milk to consumers before it spoils, and Arla is looking to close a cheese site in Cornwall in the UK. Hochdorf has launched its Bimbo-San goat milk infant formula, and on the subject of formula, and another article we'll have an interview about soon on the podcast, 108 Labs has developed Colostropedics human infant formula with secretory antibodies. There is going to be an online renewable materials conference. Soma Detect has raised $6 million in funding to develop AI technology for dairy. And you can read all of these and more at dairyreporter.com. So let's get to this week's first interview. Metla Toledo Product Inspection has released an updated version of its ProdX product inspection management software. Based on Industry 4.0 principles of secure machine-to-machine communication and in preparation for connectivity to the latest data-protective blockchain technology, ProdX delivers full digital track and trace and real-time food safety compliance. To explain it all is Rob Rogers, Senior Advisor, Food Safety and Regulation in the Metla Toledo Product Inspection Division. 
Okay, so I wonder if we could kick it off by talking about what Prodex is. Yeah, of course, Prodex is a software solution for our product inspection devices, uh, metal detection, x-ray inspection, vision inspection, and inline check weighing inspection devices, where it basically collects all the data from those systems. Certainly, there is a lot of activity on those type of inspection devices, whether it's them having to interact with the system to change a setup or to change product configurations or things like that throughout the production day. And all of that activity on the system is traced within products. All the activities on our systems, when they identify a non-conforming product for whatever reason, maybe it's a coded product that has an expiration date on it that is unreadable. The vision system would recognize that, remove it from the line so it doesn't go off into, you know, into the marketplace. That activity would also be stored within the product solution. So you can go back and you can see any of the reject activity in the solution and take action on it. So for foreign material incidents, maybe there's a root cause investigation that needs to occur. That can also be listed within the products, kind of what sort of activity had occurred due to that reject activity on that particular account. And would that cover things like if there were more than one reject, you could set it so that it would shut down a system or? Yes, there is some automation that can be involved due to uh, reject counts within a certain specified amount of time that can send an alert and things like that. So yeah, those sort of things are possible within products. It's very configurable in that sense. And what are the updates that you've just made to it? I mean, how long has it been out in the, in originally? Yeah, it's been out for some time now, um, and we're continuously updating it, certainly as the industry rapidly changes in today's environment. Those changes are coming a lot more quickly. Some of the most recent advancements within it or modifications within the product solution are really enhanced security features. So there is unique identifiers. It's very important that the metadata, if you will, within the product solution, somebody going in and making a change to the system or acknowledging something within the system, having that data be secure and untamperable and unmodifiable. So the metadata within products really keeps that information secure, unchangeable. So it's, you know, it authenticates it, if you will. And as we move more into the digital world through regulation, where regulators are trying to get access to this information sort of real time, that's kind of the future of the food safety industry, if you will. They're wanting to ensure that that data is unchangeable and everything so that it is true, accurate, authorized information coming down their line to understand the status of that particular facility. Are companies a little fearful of that kind of um, scrutiny from government and from regulators in terms of the amount of data that they can obtain from the company? Well, I think that's what's interesting about the future in the blockchain type technologies, if you will, where you have the ability to control who has access to the information and what information they have. So it's not just like all these things are giving everybody an open view to the facility and all their proprietary type information. It's really giving the control to the facility to say, okay, you have access to this bit of data, you have access to this bit of data, so they can kind of control who can see what, 
as well as ensuring, again, the authenticity of the data through a, a solution like ProdX and then connecting that through a blockchain type solution provides that security and that control of the data. So there must be good security within the product system in order that nobody could hack into that and utilize it for nefarious reasons, I guess. Yeah, that's really a lot of what we've been focusing our attention on is, of course, security features and then, of course, the operation type features of the system, but a strong focus on the security aspect. You know, if we were to have this discussion maybe two years ago, I would say that, yeah, there seems to be some hesitation within the industry fears about security, fears about access to data, all those sort of things. But with the pandemic, I think that's kind of rapidly escalated people's understanding of the importance of a digitally connected solution. It's more efficient, and they're having to do those things right now to build their own infrastructures to handle things like separating employees. I've seen some facilities when they're doing their training activities, people are walking around with headsets so they can hear very well, so they can keep those distances. So facilities are starting to develop those infrastructures based on the environment we live in today. So I think that those challenges are becoming less and less for people in those fears, I guess, are becoming less and less within the industry. And I guess the, the fact that things are, systems are a lot faster than they used to be as well as the real-time aspect of this is probably important as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm celebrating my 25th year with Mettler Toledo, in fact, a few days ago. And I was thinking back when I first started with the company, they handed me a credit card calling card and a beeper where I had to stop by a pay phone and dial a hundred numbers to, to make a phone call. And I carried around this big road atlas so I could figure out how to get to the locations I was going. And in that 25 year time frame, all of that is now not only on my phone, but it's also on my wristwatch. You know, so the advancements in technology have happened so quickly over that time frame that all of these things are now possible. And they're in a price range that's feasible. It's not like, you know, things are super expensive anymore in, in the terms of the digital world. Things are getting less and less or, or more and more affordable, I guess, is, is probably the right way to say it. As far as usage of inspection software like this, I think a lot of people, especially at different levels, glaze over when it comes to software and, and that kind of thing. How easy is it for people to utilize the software? Well, I think, you know, historically challenges with related to software had been a lot of software solutions had been proprietary type solutions that really only communicated within the network itself. But now really those solutions can interact with factory management systems and things like that, ERP systems. So we're seeing less and less problems with people trying to figure out a proprietary solution that works within their environments, we're seeing less problems with that because systems are being developed to be interactive. And I guess as well, you kind of take the fear out of that because I'm sure that no two companies are the same anyway. So you have to kind of work with them to get them to where they need to be. Yeah, I mean, there is certainly a lot of work that happens in the background with various IT solutions with the structures within an individual facility, even let alone an individual company. But yeah, working closely with those teams to ensure the, a seamless integration of the solution. Uh, so on the day you flip the switch, everybody knows what they're doing and how the system works and where to get the data and all that sort of stuff. 
So when there are changes with things like rules and regulations with the FDA, how do you deal with that? Is that something that you would deal with through the software? How do you communicate that kind of thing to the companies? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of within my role within the organization as a senior advisor, food safety and regulation. That's really the space that I work in, right? So I work closely with the various regulators, whether it's government bodies or whether it's globally recognized programs under the GFSI umbrella, working with those organizations, one, to understand where they're going so that we can ensure that our solutions help to fulfill the desires of those regulators but also to kind of help level set their understanding of what today's technology is capable of doing, especially in, in the space of our inspection solutions themselves. You know, certainly we don't want regulators writing physical contamination standards to a level that today's technology can't achieve. So, I mean, at that point, no product goes out the door. I mean, we still have to get product out the door. We want it to be safe. So really working closely with them, feeding that information back to our research and development teams, not only from our software solution standpoint, but also from our product line solutions, again, to help ensure that our solutions are well adapted to the needs of regulators, because the reality is, is if it were up to people, they probably wouldn't have our solutions in place because they cost a lot of money and oftentimes they hinder production from an aspect of removing products from the line. The reason they have our solutions is because there are regulatory desires in place. There's desires to protect their brand name. You know, so those are the reasons why our solutions are in place is to to help prevent nonconforming products from leaving the facility, which in turn improves the brand, prevents product recall costs and things of that nature. And product recalls are very expensive and also very damaging to reputations too. Absolutely. And you know, the way I see it, things that we protect against, physical contamination, uh, non-conforming product codes, package deformities, things of that nature, those are all things that create product recalls, right? And to me, the real anchor to all of this is when one of a product inspection solution identifies a non-conforming product, that typically means something went wrong in the process. The real activity starts when they go through a true root cause analysis, identify the cause of that non-conforming product, put a corrective action in place to prevent that from happening again. That's really the goal. Putting a product inspection solution into a facility, in my eyes, my goal is that it never goes off. 100% of the products are good quality conforming products that are able to be sold in the marketplace. If there's a lot of activity at one of our systems, I see that as an opportunity for improvement within the process. It's identified something's gone wrong. How can we fix it and prevent it from happening again? That's the goal of a product inspection solution. And I guess one of the other good things in terms of the companies that are using this is that they can communicate to their customers, which might be the end consumer, that they have these systems in place and it gives people that sense of security that they do have this system that is making their food safe. Yep. And also provides them a, a level of proof should there be an instance in the future. They can go back into their data and they can prove that all the equipment was tested on time. It was certified. It was calibrated and maybe even get to the point to identify 
You know, in some systems, like with a vision system, let's say tied to an x-ray system as a combination system, not only could you have the image of the package going through the system in the x-ray and identify that it was a good package and there's no non-conforming aspects of it, but the camera-based system could also look at a unique identifier on the package, like a 2D code that specifically identifies that individual package that later on at the consumer, he can scan that QR code and he could see that that package, in fact, was safe, came out of there. And maybe the non-conforming aspect of it, whether it was a physical contamination, uh, whatever it was, happened after it was out of the control of the manufacturing facility. It kind of gives them their protection also to show that, yes, we did do everything right, and this instance happened outside of our control. But a lot of this data, you know, I think there is a transition that has to occur within the culture of the industry. The data in these software solutions is only as accurate as the data that the human is putting in there, right? Today, let's say, uh, as an example, if somebody was testing a metal detector on a uh, stick of butter going through a metal detector, they may take a sample right now today, put it on the stick of butter, run it through there. The detector goes beep, it rejects that package, and everything's fine. They sign off on their handwritten piece of paper that they performed that activity. Well, moving to the digital age, now they have to interact with the control panel of the system to acknowledge, hey, this is Rob Rogers logging in. I'm performing this test. This is the results of that test. So all that information gets placed into the right data location within the network. So a little bit of a culture change has to occur with the importance of how operators interact with the devices today, rather than just going up there and doing something to the device, there has to be a systematic procedure that is followed in order to ensure that the information gets into the system correctly. Otherwise, it just looks like another detect event. They go up there, they throw the card, the detector goes beep, it's just another detect event. It's hard to determine that. We also see a lot of customers currently combining settings are running multiple products under one product setting on a system. Well, when you try to track products down to say a batch level, that may be more difficult. However, if we're now including data such as batch information into the program saying, not only am I running product number one, but product number one is associated with batch number one, two, three, four. If something happens with batch number one, two, three, four, now I have all that data particularly associated with that particular batch. It's not just batch number one, two, three, four, and five, six, seven, eight, and nine, 10, 11, where it's a little bit harder to distinguish where the problem might have gone wrong and what products may be affected by that problem. And I guess as well, you're mentioning the, the fact that you can tell if something was intact and it was a good product when it left the facility. I mean, it, it must be something that if ever there is an issue that it makes it easier to pinpoint and quicker to pinpoint when and where it happened. Yeah. I mean, well, a great example would be, you know, what had occurred a few years ago in Australia with the strawberries. They had needles in strawberries at the supermarket. Well, a lot of pressure was placed on the manufacturers to invest in, in fact, I believe there was in fact some government funding and support for this, but for farmers to 
invest in metal detection equipment. Come to find out through the investigation, it was found that it was somebody who was putting the needles in them at the store. So it was already gone through the factories, already gone through the farms and the packaging, transportation, all the way to the store shelves. And that's where the problem was occurring. So again, kind of giving companies that level of proof that they've done their part. You know, hey, well, here's my inspection results from the products going through the metal detector. These contaminations couldn't have come from my facility. So it's giving them that support. And I guess as well, you've just updated the software, but it's probably not okay. Well, we're done now. We can relax. I would imagine that you're constantly updating. Yeah, constantly updating because, again, I mean, you know, the, the technology and in, in the information age today is continuously changing and getting better. So we want to ensure that our solutions stay right in par with that and, and fulfill the needs of our customers. And we try as best as we can to even try to stay ahead of that curve. That's why we work closely with the regulators to understand where they're going in the future and their needs for product inspection data. Now we're talking cheese with Consider Bardwell Farm co-owner Angela Miller. The company's up and running again after a series of setbacks and Angela could tell us more about the fascinating history of the company and what's happening in the present time. Well, I guess we could start with the background on the company, if you could tell me, especially the uh, the interesting name and how, you know, how long you've been in business and all of those good things. My English husband and I purchased the farm in 2000, and we found out it was the first cheese-making cooperative in Vermont. During America's Civil War, a gentleman whose name was Consider Stebbins Bardwell decided that since many of the farmers were fighting a war and the women were handling children and dairy and everything else that he would have the milk collected from the morning milking up and down our valley from 33 farms that were being run by overworked women. And he had a cheese quote unquote factory built here in um, 1862. And coincidentally, or maybe he was catching an opportunity. A railroad sits on the farm property going all the way from Canada to Albany, New York, Boston. So every two weeks he would have cheese shipped to cities south of here. In 1929, we had the Great Depression here and 1930 was the year that the Consider Bardwell Farm Cooperative went out of business. So being history buffs and cheese fanatics, we thought, what else can we do with this but make cheese? And we did our due diligence and we hired a consultant named Peter Dixon, who is a old-time Vermont cheese expert. And we created our cheese types to sort of cover the gamut of cheese appetites, cheese favorites. 
And we also had a herd of Swiss Alpine goats, and we made a limited amount of goat cheese as well. We made contracts with two local dairy farms to purchase their milk, recreating the cooperative model here and keeping the two local farms in business. We made cow milk cheese, old Jersey cows, all grass-fed. We established our own property as certified organic. And we made about 17% of our cheese production as goat milk cheese. And that was in 2004 that that began and continues today. The cheeses have were extremely well received. We sort of rode the wave of the good food revolution, farm fresh, local, that whole thing. We were just in time to catch that wave. And um, we're lucky enough to receive awards, lots of major world and American cheese competitions. We're confident of the brands, the brand and the cheeses. We were knocked sideways by a food safety issue in 2019. And then the pandemic, when food service crashed, restaurants crashed. And so we ceased production for a while and started up again this past July. Are you starting to see any uh, improvements after the pandemic or are you still sort of in the middle of that? Well, we had been suffering prior to the pandemic from 15 years of constant growth. Make some money, plow it back into a larger production. So we were always cash poor. And when we had our food safety issue and we stopped sales and production till we could resolve it, we suffered a catastrophic cash flow crisis. So we ceased production. And in the course of the pandemic, we've been fortunate enough to receive a great deal of support from family and friends and Vermont, what are called working land grants. So we're comfortable enough to revise our production plan and rehire a few people and get cracking again. Was giving up an issue after like the food safety issues and then pandemic? Or do you think, is this worth it? You know, having a food safety issue is so mind shattering and soul, soul shattering. You know, we waited biting our nails to make sure to see if anyone reported an illness or worse, and that didn't happen. And a couple months into it, we were cleared to get going again. But the stop work period really whacked us in the side of the head. And I would say, not trying to be too dramatic, the post-traumatic stress syndrome... <laughs> PTSD set in, and I was just frozen in motion for a couple of months. And, of course, the thought was, why do I need all these problems? And the next thought was always, but I love what I was doing, and I love what we did. 
So that one, that one, along with a lot of tremendous support, a real outpouring uh, from both nationally and certainly within the bosom of Vermont, um, cheese making community and culture, and even the government. Is it already back on the market, or are you just starting to? Um, we we made cheese from July until January, and we were selling it in a very limited way. But we were building inventory because uh, we make one cheese that ages for a year to two years. And we did have plenty of that, and it was only getting tastier. But our, what I call semi-hard cheese, which is a sort of Italian-style Piedmontese mountain cheese, 10-pound wheel that ages for three to seven months, uh, we needed to build inventory on that because it was our best-selling cheese. Prior to the chaos, it's called Paulet, P-A-W-L-E-T, which is the town where we live. It accounted for about 50% of our, our sales and production previously. And it's very well known and appreciated. And we make a washed rind. Sorry, we are pasteurizing the, the, the washed rind currently. A three-quarter pound wheel of kind of lovely bee linen orange rind and nice and soft and gooey and stinky when you open the wrapper but it's sweet inside all jersey cow's milk we once won uh, an award for that cheese at the jersey islands cheese festival which made my husband so proud since he's english was that where the, the dorset name came from no actually that's logical but there's a dorset vermont next town over. So our cheeses are named Dorset, Rupert, and Paula after the three towns. Do you get a lot of tourists in that area that come over from New York and from Massachusetts? Absolutely. Vermont is amazing about receiving tourists. Most of the year, ski season, tourists abound, and Spring, summer, and autumn, we have the foliage, all the foliage celebrations. And quite a bit of our summer business is, local summer business is tourists. Tourists coming to the farm, tourists buying cheese from our farm store, you name it. And we were, I hope to get back into New York City's green market system, we were at several of the New York City green markets, so a lot of New Yorkers would make a pilgrimage to visit us, which was always nice. I assume that the pandemic has affected a lot of the travel there, but has that led to more online sales? Uh, we have just ventured online. Again, we just launched a new website with an e-commerce store on it. And we just had our opening, our launch last week. And orders are trickling in. We hired someone to do our social media. And he actually built the website. And he's helping me with sales as well. Are you planning on adding any other cheeses to your portfolio? I had to let go of the goat herd. During the pandemic, I couldn't find anyone to help with it. I'm looking at another small herd of goats now, 
and I hope to be milking them neck in 2022. Are there any other products that you sell online or in the store? Well, we put together an assortment of other local farms products, charcuterie, apples, lots of maple syrup. (laughs) Actually, the dairy that is supplying our cow milk right now also does the maple syrup. And just by the way, that farm was an original supplier to Consider Bardwell Farm. And its owner was our first cheesemaker in the 1860s. So it's, it's a nice circle of history. Now we go over to Australia to talk about some interesting new research at RMIT University in Melbourne, which allows for the quality of products such as cheese to be checked much earlier and more precisely in the process, giving manufacturers a better chance to react to issues during ripening. To tell us how it works and what it all means is Dr. Chris Pillage, lecturer in food technology at RMIT University. So I guess the first question would be if you could tell me what your studies were designed to investigate in the first place so that we can get some kind of perspective on what you were looking at. Sure. So uh, as you probably know, uh, cheese flavor is very complex with many thousands of compounds going to make up the flavor. So um, our studies were aimed at trying to tease that apart or unravel that complicated soup if you like of compounds and bacteria or molds if they're present in the cheese and trying to determine what relationships really mattered and what particular compounds could be used as indicators for ripening so that was the gist of our our approach there's been a lot of work recently in um, integrating large data sets so omics data sets which uh, some of your readers I'm sure are familiar with so that's been around for a few years now but as with many areas in science now you can certainly create large data sets but it's the interpretation of them and getting something meaningful from the data that's the bottleneck. I think there are, there are three studies or three papers that you've published in the last little while what were the actual studies that you did? The first study really was looking at the methodology itself. So we we looked at um, some commercial large-scale manufactured industrial cheddars and also some artisanal cheddars. And we we were just looking at differences. It was almost like a model system, if you like, to try and apply these new methods um, and their data integration methods. So they are quite complicated. But by doing them, you can tease apart as I said, the compounds and the differences that matter from the, you know, the many, many thousands of data points that you get. For example, if you do a, a HPLC mass spec analysis of a cheese, you'll get many, many compounds, but trying to find the ones that are different between different cheeses and linking that to particular properties, that's where we were coming from. So our first study was just looking at, um, as I say, some industrial and artisanal cheddars And then in a second subsequent study, we went on to look at some cheddars of different ages and also by different manufacturers. And one element there that's quite useful is um, if you think of fingerprinting, if you took a a sort of a fairly smudgy fingerprint between you and me, we might be able to see some differences, but maybe not too good. But 
as technology has improved, we can get much finer detail or finer fingerprints, if you like. And then going one step further again is being able to integrate data sets using sophisticated analysis programs and software to really get a fine scale fingerprint of a cheese. So you could, for example, see differences in different ages of the same cheese made by you know, the same manufacturer, but just aged for different times. Or you can pick finer differences between very similar style cheddars made by different manufacturers, which of course is very useful for authenticity, which is a growing problem. In fact, in the wine industry now, just to switch tack temporarily, there's um, like there's problems with fake wines going around pretending to be from Australia and, and so on. So that type of thing, it does have its uses in that area as well. And is this something when we're talking about investigating cheese that you could do this on a batch or could you do it on an individual cheese basis? Uh, you could do it on a batch, but at the moment it is at the research stage. I mean, one of the things that drives a lot of new analyses is the march of technology. As, as you know, like the classic example is DNA sequencing. The, the costs of that have plummeted over the decades now so that 20 years ago it would have been unheard of or 30 years ago the type of sequencing that we can do now or sequencing a human genome you you could get your genome sequenced if you wanted to so um, similarly with cheese we can look at cheese in much greater detail now but um, in terms of like commercial reality like being able to pick up a cheese and get a, a result and saying it's going to age this way or that way it's going to be good very good or maybe not quite so good it's not going to replace the important role of a professional cheese grader or taster, which is a very important aspect in cheese manufacture. People who can actually taste cheese very carefully and pick out the differences and, and say this is extra good or not quite so good. So we have a lot of cheese, for example, in Australia that gets exported to Japan. That, that's a major customer and being able to pick the very best cheddar for that versus cheddar that's still good but maybe not quite so good could get shunted into say processed cheese manufacturer or something like that. And when we're talking about the uh, analysis of the cheese how long does that analysis take? At the moment it's some weeks I would say probably it would be be some weeks before you got an answer you have to prepare the cheese and do an HPLC analysis. And then, as I said, while you can get the data reasonably quickly, like within days or something, it's quite complex to interpret the data. That's the real bottleneck in science these days. And this is no different. It's, it's making sense of all the data. That's where the trick is, I think. So what are the implications of your studies for cheesemakers down the line? I think the implications are that as we progress in this area, and it's also being done in other areas too, I should point out, but as we progress in this area, we'll have an additional tool in the Cheesemakers Toolkit. So we'll be able to identify particular compounds, for example, that could be a flag or an indicator that this cheese is going to ripen better than another cheese, or more importantly, particular combinations of compounds or, or the presence of particular bacteria and particular compounds together that might indicate a certain ripening profile will develop versus another one. That's what we're really aiming towards. 
So it's it's not, as I say, not going to replace a professional cheese grater who tastes the cheese, but it's an additional analytical tool in the toolkit. And it's being done for other areas as well now. Just as an aside, for example, they recently applied these methodologies to maize and managed to detect some metabolic differences caused by Roundup Ready maize, for example. So that's just one of the areas, but there's a lot of different areas going on where these approaches are being now used. So in general, beyond cheese, but also including mm-hmm. cheese, then this would have, I would imagine, impact in terms of food waste. Indeed. So if you could save time in terms of the ripening process, as we all know, a well-aged cheddar can go for for many, many months or, or years to ripen properly. So if you can pinpoint or pick that sooner, so much the better. And that will be a help for uh, minimising waste or it certainly would help manufacturers to optimise use of their product better, put it that way. But down the track, you know, once we get a better handle on the systems and what, what's happening, that's right. And could it potentially have food safety implications as well? Possibly. I think there's new techniques now, for example, long read DNA sequencing now is, is becoming more popular where you can extract DNA from a sample and, and um, perform DNA sequencing that is much longer in length, if you like, so you get much longer reads and... Um, those types of newer approaches, third generation DNA sequencing are now being used in food safety. The actual integration of omics data, though, I think the real strength in that is being able to pinpoint particular compounds and bacteria that are flags or indicators of how a cheese will ripen over time. The multi-omics analyses, uh, what, what is that exactly? That's where where you take, for example, HPLC, which is high-performance liquid chromatography. So you could couple that to mass spec and you you separate all the compounds in the cheese, but you can either do that in a targeted way or an untargeted way. So in an untargeted way, you're just looking at everything that's there. And of course, as I said at the start, if you take a a well-ripened cheddar, it's not like there's just 20 or even 100 compounds there. There's there's many, many thousands and even maybe tens of thousands of compounds. So with analytical techniques being what they are now, you could get all that data and that's omics. And the same goes for um, the microbiology of cheese. You can take all the DNA from a cheese and sequence it and you can get a very good picture of all the different bacteria that are present And of course, the more complex the cheese, the more complex that will be. So making sense of all that is where the real future lies. How will that side of things develop? Obviously, the the techniques are there, but how will Mm. the analysis change or improve? I think there'll be more sophisticated algorithms to be able to look at these massive data sets. And A lot of these techniques have been around for quite a while now, but I think they're being refined and improved, so we're getting more and more data. But the real improvements in the future will be in the analysis of the data, so being able to make sense of the many, many thousands of data points and being able to link them, link one data set to another data set in in ways that make sense. I think that's where the future will be. So better computer algorithms. And of course, one thing that's helped, I guess, is um, better computers like computing power has also increased over time. So putting it all together, that's where the future will go.
And is it something where cheesemakers, winemakers, any particular part of the food industry, will they have to go to a university, a lab to get the analysis done? Or is it something that you see companies being able to take what you're doing and use that in terms of a, of a product that they can sell to producers? I think eventually that will come uh, where companies can do this sort of thing. But we, I don't think we're there yet. I, I may be wrong. Maybe maybe one of your viewers will correct me on that. But um, at this stage, from our point of view, it's exciting research. It's new research and it's leading to some exciting answers. But whether companies and that can do it, I think they will eventually. It's a bit like DNA sequencing or human genome sequencing. Initially, that was the domain of universities and specific companies, but now other companies have set themselves up and you can get, for example, your ancestry done by one or other company. So it, it'll kind of go like that. I mean, it'll, it will eventually filter down, but I don't think we're there yet. What kind of studies do you anticipate your group doing in this field in the next little while? In the next little while, I think we need a bigger data set. So I think more to do more cheeses and get more variety of cheeses done will be a good thing. Cheddar is a very important cheese for Australia and New Zealand. So I think that's where we've been looking. Getting more data, I think, more bigger data sets, more cheddars, more cheeses. And as more and more people do it, we'll get better insights to be able to look at these um, links, if you like, or being able to make the connections that matter. It's just a matter of getting more data and, and interpreting it. That's really where it is. And as I say, the bottleneck is in the interpretation. That's the real hard part to interpret it. Absolutely, because it's it's not just the collecting of the data and, and even the interpretation of what the data means. It's how that applies to the end product. That, that has That's to be. exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about, about the uh, the studies that, that, I, that we haven't mentioned? Just to acknowledge the team, so so we had a uh, our PhD student Roya Afshari, and then uh, myself, Dr. Daniel Dyson, Professors Mark Osborne, and Professor Hashan Gill, who led the team. So uh, I just wanted to acknowledge the team right. and uh, the work we did together. Now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. This week saw butter and skim milk powder prices uh, consolidate and move a bit higher following last week's um, fairly dramatic price increases. Um, we saw butter um, in March hold around the same level of around 40, 80, 40, 90 level, so maybe up around 10 euros on the week. Quarter two, butter was holding around the same level of 43.25. Quarter three was a bit stronger, um, getting close to the 43.90, 44.00 level, so up around 30 euros on the week. And then quarter four, butter was up around 35 euros on the week, um, up around 44, 30, 35 level. Skimmel powder was playing catch up a little bit on, on, on butter from last week, so has had been uh, a lot stronger than than what it was last week. So, so March uh, skim was uh, around twenty four sixty this morning, which is just up slightly on last week. Quarter two was a good bit stronger, around the twenty five ninety level, which is up around one hundred and thirty euros on the week. Quarter three skim, trading around the twenty six ten fifteen level, twenty six twenty level maybe 
which is up around 110, 120 euros on the week. And then quarter four is up uh, just shy of 100 euros uh, on the week at around the 26.30 level. Uh, Whey was also a good bit stronger and trading around 1,000 euros almost a ton. So strong overall. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. Stone X, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that just about wraps it up for another podcast. Because schools are going to be back, the next podcast will be recorded when it's relatively quiet. Well, other than the dog, two cats, the wind howling, rain pounding on the windows, the postman knocking on the door, and the occasional tractor going by the house. So much for that peaceful rural life. But I'd say the positives outweigh the negatives. I certainly do think we spend way too much time with the grasses greener syndrome, which extends these days to having to upgrade everything. The latest phone, the latest computer, and so on. I actually didn't even upgrade my phone when the contract was up, so I surprised myself there. Anyway, time to go and see how the schoolwork is going or not going, and use that as an excuse to make some more tea. And so, until next time, I hope wherever in the world you are, you have a great week. Please take care and stay safe, and, as always... Thanks for listening.